Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Tonight we will read verse 29. Brethren, let us hear what the Scriptures say. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Amen. Some of you, no doubt, would like for me to have gone another verse or two, but we're not looking at all of those wonderful words in what is often referred to as the golden chain this evening. We continue coming to our uh, study of By Grace Ye Are Saved. We are studying <clears throat> the doctrine of grace as we understand it in the Word of God. And <clears throat> last time, we began a new section. And we are looking at the issues of predestination and election for the next several weeks, at least. So, we're, we began, um, I guess it was week before last, having been gone last week. Week before last, we looked at the word purpose. And we established from the Word of God that God indeed has a sovereign, saving purpose. It is in His grace, it is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we saw plainly in the Scriptures, that it was given to us before the world began. <clears throat> so that word purpose is absolutely vital. For those of you that were not with us, I said at that time, and, and I have uh, held this position for years, I'm utterly convinced that many of the people that rail against the doctrine of grace do so because they do not start studying the issue of salvation where it begins. They do not start with God. They do not study the Word of God they do not look at the revelation of God and the purpose that is described in Scripture. When we can ascertain that He does, in fact, have a purpose, and He tells us that He has a purpose, and then He begins to unfold for us that His purpose in Christ is to save His people from their sins, it at least eliminates some of the argumentation. But most people don't want to begin there. They, they, they begin in time and space rather than where the Scriptures point us. So that brings us to the second word regarding this most important subject. We looked at the word purpose first and have established that God does have a purpose. And we come to the word tonight, for no. Verse 29, for whom... He did foreknow. And that's the title. And our theme, of course, is that one word, foreknow. That's the verb sense. There's also a noun, foreknowledge. And we'll look at those in just a few minutes. So tonight, we just want to open up this one word and uh, pray that the Lord will grant us light in seeing it in its proper context in the scriptures. We want to look at two things. Number one, 
the definition of foreknowledge and then the meaning of foreknowledge. Words can be defined, but they must always be put in a context, and in their context they take on their meaning. Uh, I've illustrated that numerous times, and I will probably wait a few more weeks before I go through my regular a description of how words are used in different ways in different contexts again. Tonight we want to begin then with the idea of the definition of foreknowledge. The definition. Now, <clears throat> the word is found seven times altogether uh, in its uh, verb and noun forms and <clears throat> it regards either human knowledge or divine knowledge. So we want to consider human knowledge first. Strictly speaking, the word foreknow means to know beforehand. To know beforehand. To know already. To have foreknowledge. Now, <clears throat> in the human realm, we see an example of this in Acts chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, My manner of life from my youth which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Well, you see the word in verse 5, the words, which knew me from the beginning. In other words, at this point, in history, as Paul is speaking, the Jews to whom he refers had a knowledge of him prior to that moment. This is what the word means. <clears throat> we see exactly the same thing in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 17. <clears throat> ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. In other words, at the time that I'm addressing this to you, you have already been warned by me. You therefore, prior to this moment, have a knowledge before now. So, within the realm of human knowledge, the scriptures show us plainly that the word is defined and used to mean to know beforehand. <clears throat> to have knowledge prior to a certain moment in time. Now how does this apply to divine knowledge? That's the second thing we want to con uh, uh, consider. Divine knowledge. When applied to God, as we look in the scripture, we actually see this word began to take on a slightly different meaning. It does have the, the base idea of knowing beforehand. But the application, <clears throat> as uh, with all scriptural terms, is what helps us understand what God intends for us to know. To foreknow in this sense as it is applied to God, takes on the meaning to enter into relationship with before. 
There's the idea of knowledge, a prior knowledge, but it is something that actually moves into the realm of relationship. And we're going to see why. It also means to choose or to determine, determine before. <clears throat> so there is, as I said, a verb form and then a noun form. Now, most of you know that, uh, mercifully, I don't spend a lot of time talking about the Greek and the Hebrew words uh, in any detail. Tonight, it's going to be important for us to do that for just a few minutes. <clears throat> but the verb form of this particular word is prognosco. Prognosco. It is made up of the prefix pro or pra, which means beforehand, and gnosko <clears throat> is the Greek word that means to know. To know. Prognosco. Now, we find that the scriptures apply this to know beforehand verb to God in Romans chapter 11. Verse 2. It says, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Now notice, it says, he hath not cast away his people, a specific group, which he foreknew. In those words, his people are Paul's carrying over from the Old Testament, the language that we find of God's covenant all through the Old Covenant Scriptures. The nation of Israel was God's people. They were His chosen. They were His elect. God knew these people. And we're going to talk about how that works out in just a few moments. But I simply want to point out that here we have God knowing beforehand His people. Now, at this particular point, it should be obvious that it can't simply mean having some information about. God is omniscient. He has all knowledge. He has all knowledge. So the Bible isn't simply telling us that he had some facts about some people. He knows all things. Paul is not simply saying, and... He knew a lot of stuff about his people Israel. That's not what it means when, it, when Paul writes, for new. He's saying he has not cast away this special people whom he foreknew. Secondly, in Romans chapter 8, the passage that we began with tonight, we once again encounter a specific group of people. It says, in verse 29... For whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Something vital for us to lay a hold of here, right at the very beginning. It doesn't say that he knew something about these people. It says he foreknew them. It doesn't say he knew that they would. It says, He foreknew them. God's the subject of the verb. Foreknew is the verb. And He knows 
these people, the for whom being spoken of here, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. So predestination in this context is tied directly to this idea of knowing beforehand. And whom he did uh, foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, Christ Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. All right then. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, we read that Jesus Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Foreordained is the same word in Greek. Jesus Christ was known before the foundation of the world. Now, it is translated here foreordained. If you look carefully in the, in the lexicons and... Uh, do much study in the Greek, you find that it can be translated here either foreordained or even chosen. Chosen before the foundation of the world. Again, Peter is not Peter's not taking the time to say, and the Father really knew a whole lot about his son. That isn't what's being said here. Something about Christ. And this idea of being foreordained or foreknown or chosen is lying before us. Now we'll look at the noun form. That's foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. Foreknow is the verb. Foreknowledge is the word in Greek, prognosis, which we hear at the doctor's office. Now, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we have one of the most remarkable verses in all of the Bible regarding the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in one single verse. It says, Him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You spend some time meditating on this one, and it is, it's rich, and the mystery of it just makes it almost bottomless. But we can draw some things out of this very deep well, and they float pretty close to the surface here. Number one, it tells us that the most heinous crime in all of history, the murder, the torture, the wicked death of our Lord Jesus Christ was purposed by God His Father. Him, the Lord Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You, moving to the human beings, you, ye, plural, have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Here is a pronouncement. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, not only in its being recorded, but in the very mouth of Peter as he stood there preaching on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Spirit of God, he makes a claim about their responsibility. And he charges them with guilt 
and wickedness. They are responsible for what they did. And yet, here, in the same breath, he says that God, God ordained this very act. Now, these are great mysteries, and I don't expect anyone to immediately look at them and just say, well, of course, well, that's just obvious, and I believe all these things. We believe them because the Word of God sets them before us. How they all work together is something we will work at and pray about and think about all of our days. But what is absolutely clear here is that God is sovereign and men are responsible. God ordained this very act regarding the Lord Jesus and the Jews wickedly are responsible for his murder. And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 1 and 2, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers, meaning believers, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And once again, we have a particular group of people. They're God's people. And we're told that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Uh, very similar to what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. In all of these, in all of these, to greater or lesser degree, we see an idea of relationship in the use of these words. For whom he did foreknow. Now, that's why, having surveyed these verses, we want to take the definitions and then we want to consider their usage so that we might get their meaning. What is the meaning then of foreknowledge? Foreknowledge does not mean that God looked into the future and chose those that he, that he knew would believe. Now, first of all, that's a very unsatisfactory way of stating it. And I've heard very good, very intelligent men who disagree with us say it just like that. Well, you see, this is the way it works. God looked down through history and He saw the ones that were going to believe and He said, okay, I'll, well, I'll choose them. There's a problem there, at least in the way it's, as it is expressed. There are several problems. But one of them is the fact that it almost portrays God as learning something. God learns nothing. God knows all things. He isn't going, let's see, Oh, wow. In 1960, this fellow's going nuts. Isn't that way? It isn't that way. God has all knowledge. That's hard for us, limited as we are, to understand. God has all knowledge. He doesn't learn anything. He has known throughout all eternity what He is going to do what all men everywhere, anywhere, would or may do. He has always known all those things. For 
foreknowledge is not God looking down through... Now, thankfully, not all men that disagree with us uh, hold that perspective. And there are some who realize that that's very, at best, a very poor way of expressing their objection to what we believe. Now... It also cannot mean that God simply possesses the facts about people. Again, knowing all things, God knows all things about you and me. So when we come to chapter 8, verse 29, and say, For whom he did know everything about, because it's clearly particular people. He knows everything about everybody. I don't want to lose anybody here, but this is... The obvious thing is, he knows everything about everybody. So what does it mean that he foreknew them? That's the point. Because this is a specific group of people for whom he did foreknow them. Them. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Well, there is a broad sense in this idea of foreknowledge where it might be considered the eternal, all-inclusive, all-comprehensive knowledge that God has of all creatures and events. But in the narrower sense is the way we normally, I think, find it used in the Scripture. Now, remember I said something about the word prognosco a few minutes ago. And this is where that comes into play and why it's important. <clears throat> the word know, K-N-O-W, the word know in Scripture is often used to speak of intimate knowledge, of physical union, of love, which speaks of relationship. Now, this is so well supported that even those who would disagree with us cannot deny it. Everyone that has done any study whatsoever in the Word of God regarding the word K-N-O-W in its Old Testament and New Testament usage knows beyond all argument that the word know often means a very intimate knowledge and physical union. Genesis chapter 4. Verse 1 says to us, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now, <clears throat> it's quite obvious that Moses is not saying to us here, Adam in his brain, had some information about his wife Eve. That isn't what's being said here. Adam knew his wife means that they had an intimate, loving, physical union. And she conceived and bare Cain. Now the Hebrew word there, yada is translated into the Greek in the Septuagint, 
Ginosko. To foreknow means pro Ginosko. To know beforehand. Genesis chapter 18 says of Abraham, God says, For I know him. Again, Moses is not saying that God in all of His resplendent glory and in His omniscience is saying, and I have some facts about this fellow. That's not what is being said or intimated. I know Him. What this word is talking about, and is sometimes, again, if you will look in the the Hebrew lexicons, If you will look in the authoritative works regarding Hebrew, it means, I chose him. I entered into an intimate relationship with him. And this is exactly what the Hebrew is pointing to. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. God says to the prophet, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew God is not saying, well, I'm God, I happen to know a lot of things beforehand, and I had facts on you before you were a reality in time and space and history. He's saying, no, you are my chosen prophet that I love. You are one upon whom I have set my affection before you were formed in your mother's womb. Even the liberals know that this is what it says. While they would hate our doctrine, they know that this is what it says. Amos chapter 3, verse 2, another extraordinary usage of this. God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And this is a very important verse as we survey these. You only, Israel, you only have I known. Does this mean that God only has facts about this one little nation and somehow or another... All these other people that are on the face of the earth are strangers to God? Well, there's these people over here in Siberia and these people over here in Europe. I I haven't been introduced to them yet. Or my knowledge hasn't kicked in about them yet. These are the these this little handful of people in this little old stamp over here called Israel. They're the only ones that I've got the goods on. Of course that's not what's being said. None of us would think that, I trust. But it's the very word that we're talking about. You only have I known. What does he mean? You are my only covenant people. You are the only ones that I have entered into a personal and intimate relationship with. You are my people. The object of my affection. You, Jeremiah, I love you before you were formed in your mother's womb. Abraham, I know and I loved you and I invaded history and I brought you into covenant with me.
And brethren, it's used that way in the New Testament as well. A passage that all of us are familiar with, and again, we simply can't escape. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. The Lord Jesus Christ will say a verse, in fact, which we should tremble before. Then will I profess unto them, those that he's about to consign to eternal perdition, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, no one is going to stand and say that the reason that these people are being cast into hell is because God simply didn't know they existed and He just didn't have any facts about them. I don't know who you are. Off with you. That's not what's being said. As a matter of fact, God knows them extraordinarily well when it comes to the facts. He knows everything about them. There isn't a fact about them He doesn't know. They are being cast into hell because they have never been in saving union with Jesus Christ. Intimate, personal relationship. A covenant relationship. They weren't in the new covenant. I never knew you. I never had a deep and intimate relation with you. Brethren, these are the very things that Paul and Peter knew and understood. And they're using the word prognosco that way. To know, to love beforehand. It isn't simply facts. It is an intimate, loving relationship. That's why we can go back to Romans 11 and understand that Paul is saying, God hath not cast away His people. The ones He loved and brought into existence because of an eternal purpose of love. And He brought them into reality, into history, because of that purpose. And He knew them and loved them. Oh yes, those who were unbelievers were cast away. But those that He foreknew, it says, He will not cast away. The ones that He not just knew something about, but loved and was in union with. He purposed all of these things. And this is what makes Romans chapter 8 so very important. <clears throat> For whom he did foreknow, for whom he had a covenantal love. For whom 
He loved before time. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. Brethren, these are things that should grip our hearts and cause us to love our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. It wasn't that I just happened to be on this planet and somehow or another I bumped into this gospel that the Lord was indiscriminately just chunking out here and there and hoping that someone would catch on. And I finally bumped into it and was smarter than the fellow next door and was able to say, Oh, yes, I'll embrace this. And God said, Ah, well, I knew you were going to do that. I knew it. I knew that. No. Brethren, before the foundation of the world, God knew a people. And in time, and in space, and in history, this glorious eternal purpose of grace and love in Jesus Christ was applied to those whom He foreknew. That moment where you came to see your sin, that moment, or those days, or those months, or over the span of several years, I'm not going to nail you down to the, the, the hour in the minute, but in the time that God in His mercy began to clearly bring you to see who and what you were, whether it be under the preaching of the Word, or whether at home you were quietly reading the Scripture or reading a tract, or someone met you in a parking lot and spoke to you of Christ. Brethren, when your eyes were opened and you fled to Christ, it was because those that He foreknew were predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, which is not only the foundation for their joy and their assurance, but it also fills their heart with a love for Him because He loved them ere He knew them. Excuse me. Ere they knew Him. Brethren, it is a shame that this doctrine provokes so much anger and irritation. Because as far as I have known from the day that the Lord opened my eyes, it has provoked nothing in me but praise and thanksgiving and worship. Brethren, in times of great darkness and struggling and wrestling, here is a sure and a firm foundation that God not only loves me, but that He loved me before the foundation of the world. For whom He did foreknow. Our salvation is rooted there, brethren. Let's pray.
Father, it grieves my heart that your doctrine of eternal love should so often be the grounds of disagreement and disruption of fellowship between those who name the name of Christ. But, O oh, Father, to rest in the glories of a God who loved us before the foundation of the world and who sought us to be His people because He loved us before time, humbles us and brings us to praise and adoration. Oh, how we love Thee, Lord. Thank You for Jesus Christ, our Savior. In His holy name I pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.